Welcome to episode one of Calling All Communicators, a podcast where industry professionals and academics discuss all things communication. And today for our inaugural episode, we have a very, very special guest, Angie Muse. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, Angie. Um, this is Cindy Schraubin, the other half of Colonel Communicators host. I am here to introduce Angie. Angie currently is the manager of communications for Memorial Health Systems in Springfield, Illinois. Before that, she was the executive editor and vice president for the State Journal Register in Springfield, Illinois. Before that, she was with the Portland Press Herald, where she was deputy managing editor and held other leadership positions. Angie started her career at the Miami Herald, and during that time, she was part of the Pulitzer Prize winning team reporting on Hurricane Andrew. Angie has been a juror for the Pulitzer Prize twice. In 2014, she helped judge the commentary section. And in 2015, she was chair of the jury that chose the local reporting winners. Thanks for coming, Angie. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you, Angie. So uh, to start every podcast, we're going to start with uh, a question, basically just asking, how did you get interested in communication? And when did you decide to pursue it as a career? Well, as Cindy noted, I started out my career as a reporter and journalist. Um, and I think I decided to be a journalist at a fairly, fairly young age. I always liked reading and writing. And um, probably flirted with the idea of being a famous novelist early on in my childhood and then realized that that probably was not a stable financial path. And what else could you do to uh, earn a living? Well, you could be a reporter. And then I learned that truth was actually usually more, more interesting than fiction anyway. That's really interesting. Truth is more interesting than fiction. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you... Um... I don't think we have ever talked about this. Um, did you, what kind of reporting did you do? And like, did you work at the high school newspaper for local newspapers before you even went off to school, off to journalism yeah, school? I, yeah, I grew up in a real small town in Southern Illinois and I worked for my high school newspaper. I was the high school editor newspaper. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course, that's all, all, all reporters, I think were editor of their high school newspaper at some point. And I also did uh, freelance reporting for the local daily newspaper and you know, wrote about community events and such like that. I paid very, very, very little. And then I, in my senior year of high school, I got laid off from being a freelancer because of a budget cut. Now, some people <laughs> might have taken that as a hint and I didn't. So. <laughs> So I went off to, I graduated from Northwestern, went to the Medill School of Journalism. When I was in college, I had uh, internships at the Courier Journal in Louisville, at the Miami Herald, and at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And on each internship, just felt more and more like this is what I wanted to do and the career I wanted to take. Hmm. So out of those, um, out of those three places that you did the internships, which was your favorite city to live in? Oh, that's, they were all great cities to live in. I have a special place in my heart, though, because the Cleveland Plain Dealer is where I met Cindy Schraubin. That's uh -huh. right. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> did we have a fun summer. <laughs> We've been friends ever since. That's right. <laughs> so you were both uh, reporter interns then? I was actually a graphics uh, intern. Yeah, and, and I was a reporting intern. 
Yep. Um, when we met, actually, we were put on the same story. Andrew was reporting a story about a family who was traveling across country on a covered wagon. No way. Oh, my God. Yes. I forgot about them. Yes. And I had to do the graphic for it. And you came to talk to me about it. And we each thought the other one was like a real employee. And we're kind of scared of the other one. And <laughs> And we found out we were both interns. They're like, oh, we're good. <laughs> yeah, That's hilarious. Most internships, they have a coordinator and a structured program and you know, all that. But the coordinator for the papers program quit like right before we arrived. And I think we were showing up and some of the editors are like, you're an intern? Oh, okay. If you say you're an intern, you must be an intern. <laughs> yeah, we kind of all ended up as we went disorganized. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like it. Jeez. <laughs> So yeah. you spent, you spent what, like just the, the summer there? And then you went to the Miami Herald afterwards as a reporter? Uh, I had senior year after that internship. Gotcha. So I went from Cleveland back for my senior year. And as I mentioned, I had interned for the Miami Herald during my junior year in uh, college. And so they were familiar with me. And I, of course, applied there, not thinking I would get there, but they had an opening in what was called the neighbor section, which were zoned sections that went to only a portion of the readers. And it was like a twice a week um, separate section of the paper. So I got hired to be a neighbor's reporter down there right after graduation. Oh, that's really cool. And you moved on from that and you became the traffic reporter, correct? Right, right. I did a couple different neighbors um, jobs and then I got promoted to the transportation writer. Yeah. What's it? Wh what exactly do you write about when you're the transportation writer? I don't think I've ever well, heard of this. Um, everything about Florida Department of Transportation, uh, construction. At that point, Miami was huge traffic issues. It was probably one of the top 10 worst. It was always on the top 10 worst traffic stories. So I covered the I dot, or F dot, you know, all the construction projects, just regular traffic issues. I had a column where readers could share problems they saw on the roads. Then I would, you know, like call the Florida Department of Transportation and say, can someone cut the branches so people can see this sign? And they would, um, which that was one of the best parts of the job. And then, of course, there was the public transit system, Metro bus, and Miami had a light rail. So it was not hard to find good stories. And I felt like then I ended up having a subspecialty, unfortunately, in road rage shootings. Oh, <laughs> my. And, 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 and I'm picturing right now, can you give me like a time period? I don't want to age you, but can you give me a time period of when this was? Oh, this was in the early 90s. Okay. It was my first job out of college. Yeah. So when I'm thinking Miami early 90s, I'm thinking there are probably going to be a lot of road rage shootings. <laughs> It was a little, it was post the Miami Vice seal, really the 80s were the crazy gotcha. time in Miami, apparently, but yeah, there were still, and y'all you know, just lots of traffic, lots of, um, lots of pro road issues. Traffic was something re everyone really cared about down there. <laughs> so it sounds like a, um, a ho-hum kind of beat, but it was really pretty good. Yeah, it was really one of the things I really enjoyed about it was especially trying to talk to engineers and take what they said and translate it into the what the average driver would need to know. Yeah, so that was a, a lot scale. of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's really tough taking like really complex information from you know specialists in a field and being able to make it applicable to the general audience. That's just such a difficult task. 
Yeah, yeah. and it, it was a theme throughout um, because I left Miami and went to the Lexington Herald Leader to be the higher education writer. And same thing, that's a field with a lot of jargon and mm -hmm. you know, you have to just kind of boil it down to what does this mean for people who are going to college or want to go to college. Any sort of uh, tips for people when they're, to try to distill complicated information like that down? You know, I think most people who are experts when they're dealing with a writer who's trying to explain it to the public, they, they realize that they um, have a deeper knowledge and most of them really want to help you with that. It's just, I think, being honest about what you don't know. And if you don't understand something, asking the person again, you know, can you please explain that? Maybe looking for a comparison that might make sense. Mm. You, know, um, you know, it's just about asking lots of questions. And, you know, on technical topics, too, I would also sometimes call the person back and say, if I write it this way, am I explaining it correctly? That's a very good tip. Yeah, I, I think that that's really interesting because a lot of what you're saying, Angie, like really applies also to like what I teach in, in my classroom with like interpersonal and like uh, interpersonal communication and public speaking. Um, we really try to teach these students, most of whom are engineering students, to really distill down this really complex information that they're trying to tell us about. You know, I'll have students who are giving a speech about like um, some weird type of robot that they've been working on, you know, and and they, they have a really difficult time uh, whittling that down to something that the general person like me can understand. Yes. It's really it's valuable that they're teaching that actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's definitely come in handy in my new career in healthcare communications, because, you know, for instance, when the CDC puts something out, you know, it's often aimed at healthcare professionals and we have to also then try to distill it for the public. Interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that most of the CDC's communication was intended for medical professionals. Well, that's, that's, I should clarify, they do okay. a lot of public facing communication, but then they also do hospital you'll facing communication too. And sometimes you'll, we have to take that and translate it into the really broad hospital community. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So now that you're in uh, in this new career, what was the shift like going from journalism to now working in, in uh, healthcare communications? What was that shift like? Was it easy? Was it difficult? I was familiar with Memorial Health before I joined it because, you know, I lived in Springfield for about five years and y'all had seen their programs and seen what they do in the community. So it's, um, I oversee a team that works with various aspects of, we have five hospitals and about 80 outpatient program locations, clinics, programs. And so the gamut of things they may be trying to promote runs from, you know, infection prevention guidelines for the public when it's flu season before COVID, we were always worried about flu season and down to, um, promoting a golf outing that's going to benefit the foundation that supports cancer patients care. So it's a really wide variety, which I like, you know, that was one of the things I always loved about journalism, having a whole range of topics to be interested in. And you know, our, our team sort of does the same thing. They meet with the experts on the program or the need, they determine who's the audience we're trying to reach and then what are the best ways to reach that population. 
Interesting. So a lot of the same principles apply from <laughs> journalism to to your current job. Exactly. And and I do um, part of my team, I do oversee our media relations, too. So I am kind of flipped around on the other side. So and sometimes that means saying to someone, no, I really don't think there's an angle for the media to be interested in this. I mean, I saw the crazy hours you worked at the newspaper. <laughs> and then, you know, you joined Memorial Health and the idea is things are going to be a little more family friendly. You can breathe a little bit more. And I think you got a short break there and then COVID hit. Yeah, I joined Memorial in June of 2019. And y'all, like you said, um, with the shrinking newsrooms, I probably, you know, a typical, a typical day at the SJR by the time I left was probably 10 or 11 hours. That was uh, a good day. Yeah. And I routinely, you know, would be doing things on the weekend, you know, updating the website or, you know, something, or just even trying to catch up, um, editing a story that I was too brain dead to tackle at nine o'clock Friday night. You know, well, I did it at Saturday morning. <laughs> um, so yeah, and then I went to Memorial and, you know, these nice people are saying it's five o'clock, shouldn't you be going home? And I was like, I can't compute this. <laughs> so um, I did have really things started ramping up for us in February 2020, because at that point, people at the hospital, you know, were starting to get very concerned about what they were seeing and hearing and it was beginning to become apparent that it was not going to be a matter of if, it was going to be a matter of when COVID became an issue. And of course, you know, Chicago fairly early on became a hot spot. So in Springfield, we were right in line with about when the world kind of shut down. I think a lot of people point to March, 14, March 12th. That was the night that I think the NBA suspended their season and Tom Hanks had COVID and yep. everything yep. started shutting down. And then we had a press conference on Saturday, March 14th, to announce that um, the first case and unfortunately first death had occurred wow. in Sangamon County. And this was unusually, um, we did that press conference and many more to come in partnership with the County Public Health Department HSHS Illinois, which is the other hospital system in town, wow. the uh, Southern Illinois University School of Medicine, which is based in Springfield, and Springfield Clinic, which is a uh, for-profit clinic network. And the five of our organizations really collaborated and coordinated to fight COVID in ways that had really never happened before. Huh. That's really impressive. That's incredibly impressive. How did the, how did this collaboration come about? Like how, like, how was it successful? Well, it came about from, you know, the highest levels, you know, I think um, my understanding is, you know, for instance, the chief medical officers were all talking, comparing notes, what were they seeing, what was happening. And certainly the communications teams, we had a daily call in the early days of the pandemic, because we felt that we would be most effective, number one, if we were speaking as one voice, and number two, to preserve resources. So it didn't make sense for four of our teams to be doing a Facebook graphic about, you know, 
oh gosh I think at that time we were still wiping down everything with Clorox. Yeah. So, so we would get together and kind of, you know, go through what we're, and, you know, the County Public Health Department, of course, didn't have a large communications team mm-hmm. either. And so, you know, we felt it was part of our public, public responsibility for community health, you know, um, just community health is our mission to, you know, be part of that joint effort and provide support for that kind of messaging. So, you know, it was, it enabled us to collectively identify topics and then, you know, um, have a faster turnaround time by splitting them up and sharing the resulting products. Very cool. You know, I'm curious to hear from you. Um, obviously there were a lot of communication challenges with COVID. Um, can you share some of the biggest ones that you experienced and how you dealt with that? Yeah, I think initially it was just ramping up because we were creating everything from scratch. You know, we had never dealt with anything like this before. There were no existing materials that you could pull out and update. And I think another challenge too was as the science evolved, the messaging changed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a challenge to explain to people, you know, that we had been telling you this, but now we're saying that. And, you know, it was because the scientists and the physicians were learning as they went along too. And the guidance was changing as they learned, as they learned more about the disease and what it was doing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's still evolving. Exactly. Yeah. Our understanding of what COVID is and isn't is still evolving for sure. Um, and, and I think that kind of rolls into what my next question was going to be for you, which is like, how has your messaging about COVID changed over the last couple of years? Like since the beginning of it, has the messaging changed or, um, like, are you treating it differently? How exactly has it changed? I think, you know, we've just constantly tried to focus on the best public health guidance we can give people you know taking and interpreting and you know I think our hope has been that unfortunately there are times where COVID has become a politicized message but we hope that the public you know would recognize that we're a local entity that you know our physicians are part of the community and you know, dedicated to the community and that people would see us as a non-biased, purely factual resource. I'm curious about going back and talking a little bit more about your journalism career. Um, Okay. Things almost did like a 180 in the time that you were in newspapers in as far as um, the number of staff and resources available. Can you tell us a little bit about how that evolved and yeah, basically how did that evolve for you? Well, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the papers in the country right now are run by large, large chains. And many of those chains are, you know, backed by hedge funds, which means that they're viewed as a for-profit, you know, commodity. And certainly, you know, you sometimes people early in throughout my career would say, well, you guys are trying to sell newspapers. And I would say, well, yes, we are in fact trying to sell newspapers. But I think when it was not a hedge fund dominated industry, there was a little 
less expectation on the profit margins and more of a recognition of the value that journalism brought to the community. Um, you know, family-owned newspapers traditionally, historically, were maybe content with a comfortable margin that didn't have to be quite as high. Um, you know, as the pressure for profits began to increase, you know, and increase, you know, where, where, what are one of the big costs of running a newspaper? It's the people that put it out. So staffs began to be cut and cut. And, you know, I, I personally feel like it's a long-term dangerous spiral because readers are not stupid. If you keep cutting the product, you know, that to me was not a sound long-term business proposition. No, not at all. Um, and it's easy thoughts? for someone in corporate to continue cutting the product because they don't have to see people in the grocery store who know who you are and start complaining to you about how the paper has fewer pages. Right. And so many of them are not um, journalism people. They came up through the sales side or from the outside. So they right. don't have that perspective. Right. And, you know, different types of journalism require different types of resources. You know, sure, you can have a reporter write three stories a day, but they are not going to be in-depth stories by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> when, so kind of um, you mentioned the hedge, the hedge funds really kind of um, owning and operating a lot of these these newspapers now. Uh, when did you see this transition like start occurring? I think most people really put industry decline at really starting around 2008 when y'all you know, the country was having recession on its own you know all the problems then um i can translate it and and i mentioned your know, corporate owned papers but you know even privately owned papers were not immune to that the portland press herald where i worked we had three owners in the nine years i was there and, you know, it's, and each one, each time the paper was up for sale, it was because the current owner was having a trouble making it go financially, you know. So, uh, yeah, I maybe should have seen the writing on the wall a little sooner, <laughs> but. Uh, you were dedicated you know, to your profession and you were good yeah, at what yeah. you did. Yeah, I, uh, the uh, two, I, I. I definitely trace the beginning of the decline to 2008, which coincidentally, um, the Blethyn family put the Press Herald up for sale 10 days before I had my younger kid. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was rough. Yeah. So, what's your opinion on like the paywall system that we currently see? Like, do you think that's a good thing? Most people don't want to pay for their news now because it's online and they expect all the content to be free. So what do you think about this new system and how do we go about, I don't know, fixing it? Is it broken? Like, what's your opinion on it? Well, you know, it's if I think if a lot of former journalists and journalists could go back in time, um, the biggest mistake was when the internet was new, putting content up there for free. Bingo. Because as you said, people began to expect that. Yep. It created and the norm. Yeah. It yeah. created the norm and the vision of advertising that was going to support that, of course, never materialized because the leaders in the newspaper industry just failed to, I think, comprehend how the internet was really going to work. Right. And, and they cheapened so, their product. Yes. And I think you'll, I, I find it, I mean, 
I'm finding it hard to think of any publication now that doesn't have a paywall that, you know, you might have some limited numbers of articles right. to read for free, but I cannot think of anyone really who is free and completely open now. But the problem is, is that barn door kind of slammed shut and the horse had already left. So it's, it is a challenge to, um, you know, it's, I used to sometimes when readers would complain to us about, you know, not being able to get content for free on the internet, I would say, would you walk into a gas station and grab a printed copy of the paper and walk out without paying for it? You know, because it was just amazing to me that people didn't perceive a problem with paying for a printed version of the content, but you know, they would, why can't I read this for free online? So it's, it was a strategic mistake very early on that um, industry-wide just, you know, you wish it could, you could go back in time and undo it. Absolutely. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but something else that I feel really hurt newspapers was the decline in classified advertising because of the internet. And that yeah. obviously hurt budgets incredibly. Exactly. And, you know, the, the industry was slow to recognize. And I think even dismissive of things like Craigslist or, you know, they poo-pooed, no, people are always going to need newspaper classifieds. And turned mm -hmm. out they didn't. <laughs> No. <laughs> yep. Once you, once you can just post your classifieds for free on Craigslist and get, and you can sell your stuff on Craigslist in a matter of hours, you know, you don't have to wait for the paper to be out the next day. It's not only free, it's also faster. So there's yes. no incentive to, to do it in the papers. So, yeah. 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 Incredible. So strategically, you know, those two trends put the industry into a bad spot and it never really, I think, recovered. Right. And then you couple that with the hedge funds managers who are demanding even higher percentage of profit and you have a spiral. Yeah. So do you, this is very doom and gloomy conversation now. Um, do, you, <laughs> do you see the journalism industry making a rebound? Um, like how do you view the future of journalism? I would like to think that there is the future. I think those, um, I think people have come to understand that there is a need for an unbiased source that can you know, do actual reporting and um, you know, that do sourcing as opposed to anyone can put anything on the internet. So I think there is a base of, there is a base out there that understands that and values that information and you know, values someone who can tell them what's really going on versus what someone said on Facebook. Right. So that, that to me is, you know, what's going to be critical. And again, that's where I worry about the spiral is that, you know, with fewer local journalists, there's less ability to provide that kind of reporting beyond what you might hear on Facebook. And, you know, it's, it's, it's troubling to see. You know, something that's always frustrated me, um, I'd say probably the last 10 years, is the continuing um, lumping all journalists together as media. Yeah. And combining that with the talking heads on opinion shows on cable news. And um, I, I don't think it's 
there are many in the general population who don't understand the difference. I think how, you're right. How could you yeah. explain it? How would you explain that to people so they understand that, you know, you are part of the media, but you're not the quote typical, the media that, you know, is trying to um, sway their opinion one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, you would hear people, you know, talk about the media as one thing and then be, well, oh, well, but no, I don't mean my local newspaper. Exactly. Yeah, but I don't know, though, increasingly things did become politicized. But, you know, exactly. The reporter who is going to the city council meeting to be able to tell you what taxes are going to rise and how the city intends to spend that money is very different from a network pundit who, you know, is for a cable channel trying to be provocative, trying to be um, opinionated. You know, (laughs) it was always even a struggle to, you know, help people understand that the opinion page was a different part of the newspaper, not the, you know, not the um, news, you know, and that there were very distinct separations. You see now actually a lot of newspapers just cutting back on their editorial and opinion sections. And, you know, while I can understand they may need to preserve their resources on news gathering, I think it is still somewhat sad because a good opinion page, a good editorial page forces people to think about what they believe and why they believe it in order to determine whether they agree with the opinion that's being espoused. Exactly. And that's something that is more and more sorely missing in our society. Yeah. Right. yeah, the opinion section, uh, that what you just mentioned, Angie, is really interesting to me because I'm an avid Twitter user. I love Twitter. I think it's very funny and stuff. Um, however, like you'll oftentimes see the New York Times or the Washington Post, they'll publish some kind of, I don't know, uh, an opinion piece that maybe most people on Twitter might not agree with. And then it'll go viral on Twitter where people are basically bashing, you know, these uh, like Washington Post or the New York Times for these opinion pieces. I'm wondering if that like might have played a role also in like the die down of the opinion pieces, you know, where these media companies are thinking, well, if we're just going to get blasted for, you know, publishing these opinion pieces, why would we do it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think another challenge too early on with online is that the initially the industry didn't always do a good job of making it clear if you were reading something online that Mm -hmm. was an opinion or an editorial versus news. And that fueled that perception of bias you know, in the print newspaper, it was always very obvious, you know, from headers and graphic design and such that you were looking at a opinion page. But I think initially the industry, we didn't do a good job of making that clear to people online. Yeah. And even beyond online, when you look at what, you know, we were talking about cable news. I mean, when you're looking at cable news, it's basically impossible to tell if a segment is a news segment or if it's an opinion section. It's basically impossible to tell the difference because there's no labels on the screen to tell you if it's just like a pundit speaking right. or if it's an actual journalist. Right. And you know, you mentioned Twitter, Zach. You know, I'll talk about it, an area where you've got to really work to figure out what you're consuming, whether it's uh, somebody's blog uh, from a respected news source or you know, if it's even being presented in the correct context. Yeah. What, um, what sort of suggestions would you have for people in delineating whether or not a piece they're looking at is from a legitimate news source and whether or not it's valid. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, like looking, as you said, consider the source. Is it a publication you've heard of? If you haven't heard of it, you'll do a little homework. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Zach probably knows it, but there's actually a matrix Fontis chart. Group. Because, yeah, the Fontis Group the, chart. The, yep, I know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, there are certain organizations do have more of a lean than others, and you'll take that into account. But personally, I wish more people would try to consume content from a range of perspectives, even ones they might not agree with. You know, that's that's one thing I would I think we have online has made it easy for people to retreat into the bubbles where they will read things they agree with. Yes, and it only reinforces your your opinions. And the algorithms and Facebook and Twitter and so on just reinforce it again and again. It's another spiral. It is. It all comes back to the spirals. That's for sure. Um, okay. Well, we're starting to run low on time, but I really am curious about how you got involved with being a Pulitzer Prize judge. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about just how you got involved with it um, just to begin with? And then also what was the experience like? Um, I had been, I assume it came about through my work. I had been in, a member of a professional organization, the Associated Press Media Editors Group, which was, you know, essentially a professional organization for editors for professional development, you know, um, networking, that kind of thing. And I just simply got an invitation. And so I said, yeah, that sounds cool. So, and I guess I did okay the first year since they asked me to come back for the second year and that time chair a jury. So it's, it's a very intense experience. Editors from all over the country, at least when I did it, I don't know if it's changed since then. And you're limited to two years so that they always have a big, um, group of fresh perspectives so the Mm -hmm. two years I did it um, editors would convene from all over the country and meet at Columbia University in New York City and then you would spend a couple days reading reading really (laughs) hard reading a lot I remember the first year I was there they passed out little bottles of visine at the start of the day and I thought well that's interesting and by the end of the day I was really glad to have that wait of what Visine. What is that? I'm a, I'm a little ignorant. <laughs> Wait, it's for your eyes? Oh. Yeah, wow. it helps yeah. your eyes feel better if they're strained. Wow. Yeah. That's intense. And, you know, then, you know, the way the juries I was on, we, you would typically, you could figure out pretty quickly if what you were reading was a contender. Okay. I, you know, because the, there would be, you know, I think in most categories, maybe a hundred or 120 nominations, if I remember correctly. And you could tell pretty quickly if it was going to be a contender or not. And so what you know, you would, the strategy usually was read quickly. If it's not grabbing you, you, you know, there was a fairly grab me quickly or it's going to get discarded. <laughs> and then you'll, at, usually I'd say by about the first, into the first day, you'll, people we'd start talking and it'd become clear we had a pool of about 10 or 12 entries to consider and then that's when the real you would double back and read again you know and read more deeply read more critically really think about what was making one entry better in your opinion you know we would look at what kind of impact did it have did the journalism result in changes and And then the process is that the juries nominated three finalists. 
And then the Pulitzer board, which was a separate group met later and considered the finalists in every category and made the final decisions. So we didn't even know until the Pulitzer announcement day, <laughs> which of our finalists had won. That's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting to learn more about the the Pulitzer uh, contest because it I think the results just came out for this year's uh, awards yeah. this this week actually so quite fitting yeah, we're discussing it right now. So I, I assume the process is still similar, but you know it's been a while and I'm sure they probably had to do it all remotely during COVID, which would have been a challenge. <laughs> it sure would have. Yeah, that that sounds miserable having to read all those all those articles and then having to discuss it over Zoom with people. That sounds hard. Yeah, yeah, because during the reading process, people would all be reading kind of together at a long table, and so if someone found something they thought was a contender, it also streamlined the process to yeah. you know flag it for the other people and say, "Hey, check this one out. I'm really finding this to be high quality." That's nice. Yeah. Well, Angie, we're coming up on the end of our time. So we're just going to have one more question for you. You've given us, uh, you know, quite a few tips that I think, uh, you know, people can really take into their lives and, and put into place. But if you have like one other tip, you know, that people can put into place, how can they make their communication better? Like what's one tip that you have? I think the value of being curious and listening is underrated. Uh, you can't communicate what you don't understand. And you also always probably want to find out more than you may need to actually communicate. Bravo. You can't see us, but Zach and I are sitting here nodding so much. It looks like our heads are going to fall off. <laughs> I, I always, I, I tell my students every single semester, I'm like, you know, you spend most of your life listening, except you're not actually taught how to listen at any point in your life. You're never really taught how to listen. And listening is a skill that needs to be developed. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm very happy you say that. So. <laughs> exactly. Yo, I mean, I can't communicate what I don't know. And I won't know if I don't listen and have curiosity. Sounds like very great good. words to live by. Yep. Well, thank you so much for your time, Angie. We really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a fun conversation. Definitely. Thank you very much. And thank you uh, for all our listeners for listening to episode one of the Calling All Communicators podcast. We'll give you a call next week. Mm -hmm.